Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. This is episode 125, and my conversation with astronaut Terry Verts. And if this is your uh, your first time tuning in, you can find 124 other podcast rambles for your consumption at comingupnext.com.au. They're all available on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on Podbean where you can also subscribe to the show if you feel like having it hand-delivered or electronically delivered into your pocket, onto your device, every week on a Tuesday. Terry Verts, as I said, astronaut, uh, is my guest this week. He's been in space twice, uh, over 200 days spent, um, and he's just released a quite amazing book uh, in conjunction with National Geographic called View From Above. Um, He's gone through over 320,000 photographs that he took while he was in outer space. Um, And of of all the space books out there, this one is unique. It's not actually a memoir, but it's rather a combination of these photographs with stories that he has from his time uh, telling what it's like to be on a space shuttle and to be at a space station. Um, It really is just a real uh, kind of human look at what life in outer space is like and what an absolute privilege for me to to sit with him for an hour and pick his brain and, and talk about, you know, things like zero gravity and uh, what it's like, what time is like in outer space. Um, you know, we get into all of that, uh, you know, sort of philosophical stuff as well as the usual talking about his career um, and, you know, what his life was like in the lead up to coming into NASA. Um, so how about instead of me telling you what we talk about, I'm going to hand you over to my interview with Terry Verts. You're in London at the moment. We just missed each other by probably a matter of hours. Um, <laughs> are you so? Are you in London at the moment to promote um, to promote View from Above? Um, in part, yeah. So the big purpose of this trip is I'm on my way to Antarctica, but um, I did have some media here. I was on Good Morning Britain, and I'm I'm doing some other events here. So yeah, wow. It's, I'm I'm. I'm taking a chance to promote the book and um, and also my movie, Beautiful Planet, which is also playing here at the London Science Center. Yeah, right. I'm curious about uh, I so many questions from that one sentence. <laughs> what, what's uh, what's <laughs> happening in Antarctica that you're on your way there? There is a company called White Desert that does basically tourism to Antarctica. And I'm going as a guest speaker on one of their trips. It, it's pretty awesome. They go down... It's, it's actually to the continent. It's not like a cruise that kind of goes by the continent or whatever. You actually fly onto the ice. Um, they have a base camp, uh, and you spend a two-day trip to the actual South Pole. So it's something – it's certainly a first for me. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, wow. I've heard you talk about this idea of exploration uh, 
as a kind of natural human instinct, you know, speaking first about, you know, people who travel on boats around the world and then people who travel into outer space. Is this is that something that you feel like that kind of sense of exploration or adventure that really has guided you throughout your career? I do. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of the fundamental human thing that we do as people. It's ironic. Here I am in London, which was the the origin of both of our countries. Right? They sent yeah. uh, folks to America and to Australia. So we got it, the bad it, folks I, down here. <laughs> they have, <laughs> I you know. Of all the places I go in the world, I think Australia is probably I feel the most in common with. You know, we, we, Australians and Americans have been kicked out of all the best countries in Europe. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I, we definitely kinship there. But yes, uh, exploration. I think basically, if you look at the Earth and, and human history, there, there nobody is static. I mean, nothing stays the same forever. I think you're either growing or you're shrinking. You know, you're either rising as a nation or you're, or you're falling. And I think nations that have an exploration attitude that take um, risks that do new things and, and grow are, are the ones that are rising and the ones that kind of decide to cut that off and, and build a wall and, and look within are, are the ones that fall. And so I think it's an important thing. I think it's really important to do. You got this um, this incredible film, as you said, IMAX film, A Beautiful Planet, and you've just, uh, in October of this year, launched your book, View From Above, which is, you know, a, an amazing compilation of photographs and stories that you've taken and collected from your um, adventures in space. I'd love to know, though, if you remember the first time that you considered the idea of being an astronaut or kind of engaged in you know this kind of exploratory or scientific world yeah the first book i read as a kindergartner basically a five-year-old was a book about apollo it was one of those kind of cardboard one sentence per page you know little kid books and i can remember it and it was black and white mostly and i i remember just being fascinated, like, wow, people went to the moon. It was just so cool. And ever since then, I was I was kind of captivated by the idea. And as I grew up, I had pictures of galaxies and stars and stuff on my wall, airplanes. I, I really love flying. So it was, I guess it was just from a very early age. Nobody ever came and spoke to me or anything like that. I just learned about what NASA was doing. And I learned about airplanes and that that was my interest. It got that got me started. And so, uh, was this something that you kind of pursued through, like your your primary school and your high school? Was it something that your where your interest just continued to expand? Yeah, you know. So I wanted to be an astronaut, of course, but um, I actually ended up reading a book called The Right Stuff in high school, and that really kind of cemented and and put me on the the track that I needed to be on, but. Nobody actually gets to be an astronaut. I mean, that's kind of a crazy dream. Yeah. <laughs> but I learned I learned about what was required, and like I said, the right stuff helped a lot. It talked about the early test pilots and Chuck Yeager and this breaking the sound barrier and that kind of thing. So I ended up going to the Air Force Academy, which was kind of a dream of mine, and and I wanted to fly anyway, which is a good way to become an astronaut. So I did that. I went on to be an F sixteen pilot and. Um, I applied to test pilot school, which is an important stepping stone. 
um, into being an astronaut. So I, I, I guess I kind of checked the boxes along the way, not really expecting to get it, but not wanting to take myself out of the running. And then while I was at test pilot school, NASA put out a request for applications for the astronaut class of 2000. And at the time I was, I was still a test pilot school student. So a lot of everybody there wanted to be an astronaut, but a lot of my classmates said, Hey, don't apply. You're too young. Wait, there'll be another class. Just wait for the next one. Um, you don't have any experience. These other guys are smarter than you. These other guys are better looking than you are. So a lot of my classmates ended up not applying. And I was like, you know, I know I'm young. I know I'm just a student, but I'm not going to take myself out of the running. I've, I've come too far for that. So long story short, I ended up getting picked <laughs> as if I was the youngest pilot. I was, a, I was a pretty young guy. But after that, a couple things had happened. NASA had hired way too many astronauts in the late nineties. And then the Columbia accident happened. They had some problems with the shuttle and the Columbia accident happened, which really slowed the program down for years. And NASA decided that space station missions were too complicated to fly rookies. So they hired all these rookies and then didn't fly them because only the experienced guys could fly. So that age of astronauts took about, took between eight and 12 years to get their first flight. And there were no new classes for years. And very, and when they did have one, it was a really small class. So all the guys that said, Hey, just wait for the next class, wait till you're more experienced or don't, don't bother applying this time. Um, unfortunately they, they didn't get picked. And so the lesson I learned from that whole experience of applying was kind of don't tell yourself, no, that's the, that's the theme that, that, that came out of that. Yeah. Right. So if you, if you see something that you want, just go after it no matter what. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They tell you no. Yeah. If they tell you no, then then you apply again or you come up, you work harder or you, you, know, you get more education or they tell you no and you move on with your life and you do something else. But at least you applied. At least you tried for it. And so many people don't do that. And that's kind of, uh, that was the lesson that I learned. And, and, you know, I got lucky and not everybody gets to be an astronaut. I get that. But, um, I think you're, at least if you're true to yourself and you do the application, that's the, that's the important thing. While you're in high school and you're, and you're reading about what's required to be an astronaut, your, what, what, what did your parents do? <laughs> well, they encouraged it, but I'm actually, my, my mom and my dad did not go to college, but they, I think that, I don't know what they thought. That's a great question. They, they must have thought, man, we have an insane son. <laughs> um, but they my you know, they, and they weren't pilots or anything. They didn't, they never been in the military, although they did both work at um, the local NASA center, the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Um, my mom was a secretary there and my dad was a technician and, um, my stepdad also was an engineer there. So they did have, I guess, some NASA background, but it certainly wasn't as astronauts or in human spaceflight or flying or anything like that. So it was something they encouraged. My dad bought me a telescope when I was in sixth grade and no, nobody knew anything about telescopes. I just had to learn how to use it myself and find the stars and everything myself. He bought me a TRS-80 computer. I can still remember it in 1978. And it was the coolest thing ever, except for it didn't have any memory. Like, eventually I got a cassette 
like there was no hard drive of yeah. course there wasn't <laughs> even there wasn't even a floppy disk so eventually i got a cassette player and that was like the memory for it yeah, right. so when i first got the computer the only thing it would do would, was turn on and then i would have to write a program for it to do anything so i learned how to program basic by myself probably when i was 11 years old i just kind of taught myself how to use the thing so i think those experiences really help i guess with the self-motivation aspect of life yeah and i guess also not uh it i help with i guess it would help with not waiting for other people to give you opportunities just creating those sort of uh, opportunities and experience yeah you know that's a great that's a great way to look at it. I don't know that I've thought of it that way, but if you just sit around waiting for your big break, it's probably not going to happen. It's the old, the old adage, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Tell me about going to the uh, the Air Force Academy because, uh, you know, look in, in doing some research, I, I saw that you, you know, clocked up, you know, over 5,300 hours in more than 40 aircrafts before you even went you know, to NASA, I'm, I'm really interested to kind of understand and know what was giving you that kind of thrust and push towards, no pun intended, towards, um, <laughs> you know, this, this career in the Air Force. I think it was just the love of flying. I mean, like I said, when I, as a kid growing up, it was, um, I actually had an F-16 poster on my wall. The very original, it, the first flight was in 1974 and it was this kind of funny looking red, white, and blue airplane. And, um, ironically that was on my wall as a kid. And then, you know, 10 or 15 years later, I was an F-16 pilot. It was just one of those things I loved. I can remember my dad actually took me and got a, like a, a barnstormer ride when I was eight, you know, in the, in a biplane, it was like the local County fair and they were selling rides for 10 bucks or whatever it was. And, so I, it was just a desire to fly. Uh, when I went to the academy, I ended up flying. Like I got my my powered pilot's license just on my own on the weekends, and it's a normal American. Well, it's not a normal university, but in some ways it is. So they have like a football team and a baseball team and a and a rugby club. You know, there's normal kind of sports you can do. Well, the sport that I did was was soaring or flying gliders. Uh, so I became a glider instructor with, on the Air Force Academy airplanes and learned how to teach other cadets how to fly gliders, which was pretty awesome. I mean, I, that was one of my favorite things to do there. So I just always enjoyed flying. What's the uh, what's the adrenaline rush like when you uh, when you're <laughs> flying one of those things? Well, that's funny. The, uh, of course. I I really wanted to be a fighter pilot. I can remember when I, um, after pilot training, I got an F-16, which was, you know, it was really good. And not many people got to be fighter pilots. Only the top guys got to be fighter pilots. And um, I went home and I told my grandmother, hey, grandma, I'm going to fly an F-16. She's like, what's that? She had no idea. And I, I don't know if I showed her a picture or whatever. And she was like, oh, that's nice. Well, when are they going to let you fly the big ones? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, Grandma. <laughs> you got burned by Grandma. I had to work really hard. I had to work really hard to get to fly the small ones. But, yes, there's definitely, I mean, flying low, going supersonic, you know, going vertical. One of my favorite things to do when I was at Edwards was just pull the airplane straight up and put the afterburner on and see how far. Because I would think, like, well, if I ever get to be an astronaut, I'll get to, I'll get to fly straight up. And uh, in the F-16, you can go straight up for, you know, 30 or 40 seconds and then you run out of airspeed and then you got to come back to Earth. 
And I can remember thinking, well, one of these days I'll be in a rocket and I won't run out of airspeed. I'll keep on going until I'm in orbit. So that was one of the things I'd like to do. And then in 2000, you got the call from NASA, like you said before. Well, you didn't get the call from NASA, but you were able to apply. What was the application process like? Uh, it's not, you know, something that, um, you know, you speak to someone every day about. Oh, God, it was it was in depth. Um, they used to have this stuff called paper that you had to, like, print out and, you know, sign your name on. And, um, I mean, just lots and lots of paperwork. I had to apply to go through the Air Force. They had a selection board first. And then NASA had one also. And there's a couple different, like, gates you have to go through. I think for our class, there was about 3,000 people that applied. When I left NASA last year, one of the last things I did was help them go through 18,000 applications. In the world of Twitter and, you know, Internet and stuff, you can – we definitely attracted more applications this year. So you go through this process where – this poor unfortunate group of astronauts sifts through these thousands of applications and they get down to a couple hundred. And then there's another group that sifts through those and they invite about a hundred, 120 my year to interview. So I came down to NASA in Houston for a week long interview. It was mostly medical tests, but also some psychology tests and also just like get to know you stuff. So there's like, you know, one night they're like, Hey, come on out. We'll have a barbecue. And, It'll be fun. Well, it's fun, except for there's like 20 astronauts there looking at you and analyzing you and, you know, <laughs> seeing how you seeing how you interact and stuff. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so you go through all this stuff and then you wait and you wait and you wait. And they I remember they said, we'll tell you by March. And then March came and then April came and then May came. And of course, everybody who's applying to be an astronaut is also a test pilot or a doctor or, you know, a program manager, engineer, you know, everybody had careers. And so your career is just on hold. And they were waiting for the first modules of the space station to be launched because basically if they failed, then there's no sense in having an astronaut class because <laughs> we're not going to have a space station to build. So eventually July 20th, the moon landing anniversary was the day they called us. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you got the call? I was in my office at work, and then there was a small group. I was having a meeting with my engineer team. I was a, an F-16 test pilot at the time, and we were talking about some missions we were going to fly, you know, getting ready for the next day's flights. And, uh, I mean, everybody in the squadron knew. Every, of course, everybody there knew every detail about everybody's NASA application. So they knew I was waiting, and they knew I was, like, down to the very last – there was basically probably 30 or 40 people that were in the, you know, the waiting phase. And we were, so they knew it was like, I've had a chance. And Charlie Precourt, the chief astronaut called me. So you, you either got a call from the HR guy, which meant you didn't get picked, <laughs> or you got a call from the chief astronaut, which meant you got picked. And there had been some yellow stickies, Terry, the HR office called or something and I was like crap and I wasn't in so anyway eventually I was sitting at the office and the phone call and it was him and I couldn't I just like went flush you know I turned red and <laughs> couldn't talk he's like hey you still interested in coming down to Houston and I was like let me think about it yes <laughs> and uh so he said but hey the you know the, the class hasn't been approved by Congress yet so you can't tell anybody and I was like, all right, well, when he said they'll know in the next couple of days, but just keep it quiet for now. But we just want to let you know. And so I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. 
okay, sounds good. Okay, bye. Click. And I hung up. So I didn't, and I'm surrounded by these guys who are looking at me, you know, smiling, turning <laughs> red. Who's that? Oh, nobody. And so about five minutes later on the squadron overhead speaker, they're like, congratulations party for Terry after work today. You know, you, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say anything, but they, they knew. So right. it was funny. There were people were asking you what was the what was the party for, and you were saying nothing, not for right? Anything. Exactly. <laughs> when I was looking at your uh, your biography, I did notice that there was what ten years between when you uh, did move to NASA and when you took your first space flight. I guess when you go or when you join, is it like? in a sense that you're going back to school or university for a number oh, of years? entirely. Yeah. yeah, entirely. The You go through a formal training program called the ASCAN. So they make you feel important, you know, astronaut candidate, but you're an ASCAN for a while <laughs> and uh, for the first couple of years. And then uh, you get to be an astronaut, but you had to wait. And like I said, because of all those factors, A, there was they hired too many people. They There was really, they just hired too many uh, rookies and then they didn't fly them and then uh, there were some technical problems with the shuttle and then of course the columbia accident happened and so it's it just everybody had to wait a long time um for their first flights but it was worth the wait um for sure but the whole you know you're not in training for a decade but you're always doing some kind of training like if, at least once a week or a few times a week you'd have a class of some kind or another either a practice shuttle sim Russian language training, uh, or, uh, I don't know. There was always something I learned. I had to go through the rendezvous flow. I learned how to do spacewalks. There was always like some kind of, uh, practice or training you were doing, but on the, the other side was kind of your day job, or they give you what they call ground jobs. So I was at Capcom for about five years where I worked in mission control, talking to crews who were in space, uh, which was great. It was a, by far the best training that I had because I just learned so much about the process of spaceflight. I was the T-38 guy, so I, I was like the safety officer for the NASA flying program. I was a ground support guy, so f for folks that were on six-month space station missions, I was uh, like the guy on the ground that went to all the meetings and talked about what science program they're going to do and what their daily activities were and when they're going to launch and just all the different planning and coordination that went along with the space mission. Um, I did that. I was the family escort for the Columbia crew, the SCS-107 mission that, you know, was lost. So my job was to go be with their families for launch and landing for that. So that was one of my, one of my duties um, as an astronaut while I was waiting to, waiting to fly. Yeah, right. That must have been a pretty heavy, heavy moment. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, you know, it be, it became a lifetime job. I'm still, I'm still friends with the families and we still, you know, stay in communication. And yeah, that, that was, you know, that was terrible. And the, the thing about it was the Challenger accident, the first shuttle explosion in 86, and then the Columbia accident, both of those accidents were not technical rocket science accidents they were management accidents and that that's what was i guess really hard for folks it was in other words they were accidents that did not have to happen um they were they were things that you know we we knew the warning signs were all there and we ignored them and that's what that's what i think made the those accidents even uh 
harder to take. I mean, sometimes, you know, accidents happen, but most of the time, very rarely does an airplane just explode and crash, right? There's always some kind of warning sign. There's usually something going on that, that if you would have caught it, you could have prevented it. And that was the case for both the shuttle accidents. I suppose, you know, uh, the the whole idea of space exploration or, or any expo- like kind of pioneering exploration, there's an inherent risk factor that you're, ca- that you're coming up against because, in a sense, you're, ca- you're going into the unknown or you're doing things that either haven't been done often or haven't been done at all. Is that something that you're thinking about when you're going through the, the, this training? Well, I mean, it's certainly there. And, there, you know, I remember the night before my first shuttle launch, writing some letters to my kids. Um, you, you just don't know. And there's, there's the space shuttle was probably the most complicated thing that humans have ever built. It was so big and so many different pieces and parts. And it really was uh, just a humongous job to keep that thing flying and it only takes the wrong part to not work or be installed incorrectly or whatever and so it's a risk that you're certainly aware of it's not one that i dwelt on or you know thought about terribly much but it was definitely something that i was aware of when you did your first uh, your first space flight um, what was what was that whole process like for you know from finding out that you were going to go to actually you know being on the on the rocket ship being launched well the first flight i had was about a year's training flow a little over it and of course when you get assigned to your first flight it's just super exciting you know and then you have to learn all about what you're doing so my first mission was installing cupola and node three so we installed two different modules to the space station and the the station took about a decade to be built a little more than 10 years actually from the first module being launched until the final uh, assembly and ours was the final assembly official assembly mission for the station and the first one to bring two modules so node three was a living module there the recycling equipment is there the exercise equipment is there the bathroom is there um, a lot of the kind of living water and air supplies are in this Node 3 module. And then the cupola is the seven-windowed module that's the coolest place in space by far. It's the the observation module. You can go in there and open up the window covers and, and fly the robotic arm around and, and actually see what you're doing rather than just using monitors to to use a video screen. And uh, Or you can just look at the Earth, the, the movie I filmed, Beautiful Planet, um, most of the several hundred thousand pictures I took were from the cupola. And so it was really, really cool for lack of a better word to be able to be the guy that installed it. And I actually like opened up, I took the first view out of the cupola, which was pretty, pretty awesome. That's a, that's incredible. What a, what a legacy to kind of create and to, to leave behind. Um, what was the feeling like for you when you were, strapped in and as the the rocket was taking off <laughs> so that's chapter one you got to read chapter one there, there were so <laughs> many stories of from from view from above there were so many stories just during the first eight minutes of my space flight i guess first of all the first thing i noticed was the sound like when the rocket engines light up there was this roar that i had never heard before i mean i've flown a bunch of different kind of jets i've been a fighter pilot and afterburners but the roar of rocket engines is something i had never heard before and 
the shuttle main engines light up about six seconds before you actually lift off the computers kind of make sure they're running they do all the checks so if there's a problem they can shut them down before you launch um and so after six seconds of the three main engines running then the two giant solid rocket boosters lit off and they're the big white strap-on rockets on the side and i mean those when those things light off uh they put out over three million pounds of thrust each and they burn 10,000 pounds of fuel a second each. So, I mean, there it was no doubt that something very significant had happened in my life when yeah. those things lit off. <laughs> and you can't turn them off. Like once they once they are ignited, they're you're you're going somewhere. Um, you you can't stop them because it's solid fuel. So anyway, um, that was the first few seconds. We launched at nighttime. It was a 4 a.m. flight. And there was a thin cloud deck above us. And when the engines, when the rockets lit off, nighttime turned into day. It was amazing. It was just this, it was black and all of a sudden it was white outside. And um, one of my favorite things is just to watch YouTube videos that people posted like their home movies and it's dark and they're counting down. And there was probably a hundred thousand people there on the Florida coast watching and the whole crowd is counting down. And as soon as the engines light up and it turns daytime, everybody is screaming and cheering. I mean, it was just this awesome experience, kind of everybody coming together in this one moment, watching people launch into space. It's pretty awesome. So from there, you go um, up. When the solid rockets run out of fuel about two minutes later, they both pop off and parachute back down into the ocean. And that was a humongous, gigantic explosion right next to my head. The 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 motor that pushed them away from the shuttle was like literally. It sounded like it was right next to my ear when that thing went off. As as we were going uphill, uh, I can remember looking out the front window it, over to the left, and the moon was there on the horizon. The moon had just risen, and I remember thinking, "Man, here I am. I'm I'm smashed in my seat under G-force." Uh, shaking and roll. The, there's a lot of vibration in first stage of the shuttle. This huge roar is going on, and we're flying to the moon. I mean, it was like the coolest moment. It was just an, the, the surreal, two second long moment seeing the moon out in front of us. And I, it was out. It was Zambo. George Zamko was our commander. And I was like, Zambo, look out the window. Anyway, the it, and there's just a bunch of stories like that. Just during my first eight minutes of powered flight, uh, before getting into space. It was it was pretty awesome. When you do get out into space, and you, I guess you you know you're seeing Earth for the first time from this completely different perspective, where I guess you're seeing the whole thing, and you're out in space. What's that like from you know I guess literally, but also from a philosophical point of view? I've got to imagine that that sort of thing would, would change you immediately. Yeah. You know, seeing earth, I mean, I literally the whole book is, well, several chapters of view from above are about that, what it was like to see earth and, and the stars and, you know, everything. But I, the very first view I had was right after we got into space, uh, the engine shut down, we're floating, the shuttle separated from the fuel tank. It was just, you know, story after story after story of these amazing things that had just happened. And we were flying over the North Atlantic, and a few minutes later, uh, we flew into Sunrise, going eastbound. And I can remember seeing this long, thin, blue 
band of the sunrise com- coming through the uh, atmosphere in the distance. And when I saw that blue sunrise, I remember thinking, wow, I've never seen that shade of blue before. And that really surprised me because I had seen a million astronaut pictures. I had read the books. I had seen the movies. I worked in the astronaut office for almost a decade, and no one had ever mentioned that before. But just the, I guess, the deep intensity of the blue, it, the thought that I had was I've never seen that shade of blue before. And that just was the first sight of what became over seven months in space of seeing um, different places and sites you can't even imagine. I mean, the pictures are pretty spectacular. You know, National Geographic photography book is usually pretty good and they did a nice job editing the photos, but they just don't do it justice, you know, seeing them with your own eyes. Um, You actually get to know Earth by color, uh, which is the title of one of my chapters, Colors. But so we, so I talked about the cupola module that I installed and there's seven windows. And so when we finally installed it, we opened up all the window covers and then we went to work and I was back inside no three, basically plugging in wires and being a mechanic, getting this module up to speed and running. And all of a sudden the whole inside of the station turned red and I, and I went, okay, this is weird. So I went down to the cupola and looked outside and there was Australia down below. Uh, and it was the outback. And so I was like, wow, that fl- I had never been to Australia, I'd never seen it or anything. But my first experience with the, with Australia was the color of red. And so now I think of places on earth by their color, you know, before I flew, I, I thought of places, if I had visited there, what are the people like? What's the language like? What's the food like that? That's kind of how I thought of earth. But now when I think of it, I think of it by color, which to me was interesting. I had, I didn't expect that. And I remember, especially on on one of my spacewalks, 99% of the spacewalk is just work, 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 busy, 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 next task. And you're always holding on to the space station structure. So you've got a face full of metal and cables and equipment, right? That That's just what you see when you're holding on to the outside of the station. But I took a second and I kind of held on with one hand. And I rotated my body around, so I was looking away from the station. So I'm out in space. I'm on the very front, what's called Node 2 part of the station. And I looked out, and there was this sunrise from one side of my peripheral vision to the other that was the most amazing, like, amazing sight. You can't even describe it. And I remember it was like I was hearing from God just saying, I am. You know, it was this surreal And I had the thought, man, I'm seeing something that like humans aren't supposed to see this. You know, I was getting a glimpse into something that we just weren't supposed to see. And then it was back to work because I got these cables to connect and (laughs) then my ground is asking me to check the setting. Yeah. So in so many ways, the the entire spaceflight experience from my first shuttle launch to the end was, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing. Now back to work because you got, you know, you, you got work to do. Um, it was a, a, a continuous contrast between the sublime and the mundane. Yeah, I guess you're seeing the you're kind of seeing the the mechanics in a way of what a day is from this kind of bird's eye view. I don't. That's probably the wrong kind of analogy, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, you actually get to see what a day is. I mean, that's true. That's a great way to put it. Um, one of the things I 
that I came to realize is, man, there's been, you know, and I, I saw sunset. In fact, a lot of times when I, I do a, a talk or I'm speaking, uh, which is my new profession, uh, I'll talk about the perspective that I had, the cosmic perspective of a lot of, there's a lot of cares of earth and there's, you know, worries and this is going wrong and that's going wrong. And what I try to do is take myself back to the, the view that I had and I'll think of this sunrise or the sunset from space and, and kind of realize that in the big scheme of things, the, whatever problems or concerns we think we have are, are just not that big in the, in the big scheme of things. Was there a sense when you, when you kind of got out there and you were floating, I could imagine that there would be like this incredible kind of serenity, but also a feeling of insignificance. And I don't mean that negatively, but I mean like, right in in a kind of like you say in a bigger picture sense the kind of minutiae of what happens in your day to day i could imagine would seem quite insignificant yeah that's exactly it and right so i don't want to make it seem like we're not important and don't matter that's not at all but there is definitely i guess a perspective that yeah there's a much bigger universe out there and our concerns are not as bad as <laughs> as bad as we think usually so yeah that's that that's definitely one of the lessons learned but uh, i i hear a bird in the background where i am yeah i have a funny bird story uh go on so one day i was minding my own business floating through node one it was probably two-thirds you know i'd been in space for i don't know three or four months and uh as i floated through the central module i heard this bird chirping and i stopped and I, what the heck is that and i looked down through node three my crewmate misha kornienko a russian cosmonaut was exercising and there was a bird chirping down there. And I said, Risha, do you have a bird? And uh, he laughed. He has this like big hearty laugh. No, no, no. And so the Russian psychologist had sent up MP3 sounds from Earth. And uh, it was so awesome to hear that thing. I mean, the station is a nice place. It's metal and plastic and fabric. And it's, you know, 22 degrees and it's low humidity and um, it's like this nice, sterile place. And when I heard that, I thought, man, that's the most amazing thing. So, um, and the Russian psychologists are really good. They understand a lot of the, what it means to be a human in space. Um, they understand that that's important. And so we got, they ended up sending up bird sounds. They sent up rain sounds. Uh, they sent up like ocean waves. They sent up a crowded cafe. And so you could just listen to these sounds while you're working or sleeping or whatever. Uh, so I went to m sleep for about a month. I'd put my Bose headsets on and plug it into the laptop and just drift off to sleep in my crew quarters listening to rain. And the whole crew thought this was so cool. We One weekend we went around and the station is just covered in laptops. There's probably 50 different you know, normal Windows or Linux laptops everywhere. So we put rain on all the laptops and hit play. And it rained for a weekend on the space station, which at first was really cool. And then by Sunday night, we were all like, oh, my God, that's enough rain. So we went around and, turn, and we turned it all off. <laughs> so it became torrential. It was really a nice um, connection with Earth was just to hear sounds. What are some of the difficulties or, you know, you say... Um, they understood what it was to be human in space. What What is it to be human in space and what are some of the challenges that, you know, you'd come up against 
So most of your space station existence is just doing work. I mean, they have this very detailed schedule every day and there's something they call the task list. And so, you know, you're there to work. And so most of what you do is work and, but you're human. So it's like any human, you like the weekends and you like vacation. So for me, the, the, my, um, diversion or distraction or enjoyment was taking pictures. And that's why I ended up taking the most number of pictures ever. Would you take the, like 320,000 photos? Yeah, it was, it was a lot, a lot <laughs> of crazy. A lot of them, a lot of them were like a time lapse. So I would put it on a timer and it would, for five or 10 minutes, it would take like two pictures a second or something like that. So, but yes, I took, I ended up taking a lot of still pictures. As a sidebar, how, how did you like break those down when you were deciding yeah. which ones to put in the book? That, that must have taken and been a mission. I'm still doing that. So while I was in space, when I would take a picture, I would, I would save it in this like best of folder. So I kind of organized it by location. And then, in fact, even today, last night, I was going through this thing to come up with a presentation for when I'm in Antarctica. The work I did in space to organize it is how I still have it organized today, my pictures. But thankfully, Nat, Nat Geo had a photo editor for me. So this lady, Kate Carroll... And David Woodhead, they they went through all my pictures and picked out the best one, you know, helped me pick out the best ones. So I said, hey, here's the ones I want. They went through all of them and helped me pick other ones. And we kind of um, sorted through them and came up with the 300 best ones for the book. Yeah, right. Just going back to what you were saying before, sorry, before I uh, rudely cut you off to talk about your photographs, um, about what, <laughs> That's okay. what, it, uh, what it was to kind of, you know, live and exist on a day-to-day basis in this environment? Like I said, most of it was work. My distraction was photos. But, uh, you know, the biggest thing is your crew. I mean, you're there with other humans. You're not just there by yourself. And I really enjoyed it. When I was commander on Expedition 43, I had a great crew. Um, We're still friends to this day. We still email and text each other, um, Americans and Russians alike. That was a good part of it. But the good thing about the station is it's a big place and you can – kind of get by yourself and they have a little they call it a crew quarters it's like a phone booth size area that is yours and so you sleep in there and you can keep family pictures and your bag of chocolates or whatever so you have your own little space which was really 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 helpful from a psychological point of view um, and then they had ways that you could connect back to earth so of course friends and family and was is the worst part about being there is that you're gone from them and while I flew, we had Thanksgiving, uh, which is maybe the biggest American holiday. We had Christmas. We had every every crew member had a birthday. We had New Year's. We had, I'm a baseball fan, so the first day of baseball season. <laughs> we had uh, opening day, we call it. Did you, did you have television? Yes. So NASA would send up, they could actually pipe up live whatever. So during the first part, the crew that we had like sports, so they piped up the sports channel. And during the second half of my mission, the it was a, the the crew swapped and they liked news, so they they piped up the news channel. So that was you know available to watch part of the day, not all the time, but sometimes. And then for me, they would send me like baseball games or little uh, MP4 files of. Um, different news programs or sports that I wanted to watch. Uh, they would send TV shows, so it was kind of like 
Netflix binge watching. I probably watch more TV in space than I ever do on the ground <laughs> because they uh, schedule you for two and a half hours of exercise a day, which was great. It was really good to have that much workout time. You know, while you're working out, you just put on a TV show or whatever, run on the treadmill and and uh, watch a movie or something like that. So yeah, the that was really helpful. There, I had a lady named Beth Turner that was my um, psychological support person, and she sent me up lots of you know stuff that I wanted to watch, which is which was great. How does the concept of time work when you're in space? What what sort of <laughs> schedule are you going by? Well, we we set our watches to GMT, you know, Greenwich. That's just the the time that everybody uses. So uh, you have to have some reference because you're going around the Earth every ninety minutes. So there's a sunrise and s- sunset every ninety minutes. That's that's, um, that's crazy so that, to think about. It's it's just weird. Yes. So the, our bodies are not designed for a ninety minute sleep schedule. So we set it <laughs> we set it to GMT and just work off that and. You know, at nighttime you close the hatches, so you, or the hatches are always closed. You close the hatch covers so that you can uh, have some darkness, and you turn all the lights off. So it seems like at nighttime on the station, it feels like nighttime, even if it's in you know blinding sunlight. So the first time that you went was in 2010. The second time that you went was in 2014, and you went for 200 consecutive days. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. What um, what was it like to be away from your family and to be away from your home for such a sustained period of time? Yeah, that was tough. So my kids were teenagers at the time, and when they were younger, I'd spent, you know, I coached every sport. I tried to be home as much as I could, and it was a, you know, huge part of my life. And then doing this mission, it really took a lot of time away. Not Not only the mission itself was long, but the training was several years of, constant travel uh, to Russia and Japan and Europe for training. So it was tough and you miss a lot of stuff. Um, you know, my son turned 16 and got his driver's license while I was in space and my daughter became a teenager while I was in space. And so that, that kind of stuff was tough and you, you can't ever get that time back. But, you know, I looked at it, Hey, it's an important thing you're doing. I mean, s- space travel and exploration is important for America and all of humanity. So it was a worthwhile thing to do, and I kind of knew it was like, look, I've got these few months I'm going to be in space, and then I'll have the rest of my life to be back on Earth. And uh, it's just, I, I, I didn't look at it. I didn't dwell on what, what was happening too much. I just said, I'm here for now. I'm going to get the most out of it and enjoy it. It'll be something um it's this amazing experience and then I'll have the rest of my life to be back on earth and, uh, and do earth stuff. (laughs) So, so that attitude kind of helped me get through it and not get too, uh, not get too down. Was there the same sense of kind of surrealism when you went out the second time or was it more a feeling of kind of nostalgia or what was the kind of, what was the sense the second time? Yeah, the second, so the first thing was my body remembered it. Like the first flight I flew my first couple of days I had, it was really painful. My, my head really, really hurt. Like I couldn't move left or right. It it was just a really bad headache. I took a lot of ibuprofen those first two days. And then all of a sudden it was like a light switch. Boom. And I was fine on my third day in space. It was just a moment where, wow, I'm okay. It just, my headache cleared up. 
But when I flew the second time, so physiologically, my body was just like, all right, you're back in space. And it just, it knew what to do. It, it had it figured out, which was, uh, which is pretty cool. And the view was still amazing. I, you know, even after seven months total in space, I was, you know, my last day in space, I was still loving the view. In fact, my favorite picture I ever took was the very last picture I took in space. So that kind of sense of awe and wonder never went away. Um, even though I adapted much quicker the second time. I got to ask, what was or did you do anything ridiculous in zero gravity? <laughs> I don't know about ridiculous. One of the cool things we did, um, my crewmate Samantha, an Italian lady, was doing, a, I guess, a little science project for a friend of hers who's a physicist. And she had this clear plastic ball and she put M&Ms in it and little candies in it and he was trying to study like particle interactions with each other. So one day we, we were, we looked at this thing and all the M&Ms were at the bottom of the, of the ball. And that didn't make any sense because in space, everything floats. We're like, why is that happening? So I shook it up and a couple minutes later, all the M&Ms had fallen to the bottom of the ball. And we really puzzled over that for a while. We're like, why in the heck nothing falls in space for floating? Well, it turns out, basically, if something's at the top of the station, it's in a slightly different orbit than things in the middle of the station. Even though they're only, you know, centimeters apart, they're in slightly different orbits. So the way orbital mechanics works, things higher up are going at a different speed than things lower down, and they end up kind of falling or moving to one side of the ball. So we put this uh, this ball of M&Ms in different spots of the station, like on the top, on the bottom, on the left, on the right. And you can kind of see them float to one side. So it was like this really bizarre phenomenon that no one was expecting. It was pretty cool. It sounds like one of those uh, like optical illusion things that you try and look at from different angles <laughs> and you can't quite, your brain can't quite figure it out. Yes. So our, so my thing was, all right, I'm going to put this ball on different parts of the station and you know, physics professors around the world will be able to use this as an extra credit project for their students. You know, <laughs> what part of the space station is this ball on and what's happening to the M&Ms? Do you find that there are things that you, for lack of a better word, I guess, yearn for on Earth that you had in space, things like, you know, zero gravity or this amazing kind of perspective or view of the world? You know, um, of course, the view. God, I would love to go back. I would love to fly a mission and have some spacewalks where my only job was just to take pictures. I mean, that would be awesome. But yeah, you miss that. Floating is just cool. I mean, there's you can't do that on Earth for more than a few seconds. Um, <laughs> you will hurt your head. You you'll you'll end up your floating will end uh, quickly. <laughs> you know, down here on Earth, one way or another. So that was great. But you know, after my first flight, I really wanted to do it again. And I'd only been on a two-week shuttle mission, and I wanted to go fly the shuttle again. And I, I, you know, I, I, I still wanted to do it. After my second flight, I had done everything there was to do. Basically, I'd been a station commander, and I'd done spacewalks, and I'd filmed an IMAX movie, and I, I'd taken all these pictures, and I'd piloted the space shuttle. I've all the boxes to check had been checked, and so um, I was at a point where I'd been at NASA for 16 years. I was trying to decide what was going to happen with the future. And it was kind of like, all right, I've, I, I, it's time to move on with the next phase of life. Sure. 
What what are you what are your thoughts on commercial space travel? I know that um Mr. Branson has uh you know been advocating for that and trying to push that sort of technology for a while. Is that something that you foresee as being realistic? Yeah, I I do. Um so there's a couple different aspects of of space that are commercial. Um first of all, like the global space industry is, I think, about $300 billion a year revenue. It's a big, it's a significant industry. I mean, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. And the vast majority of that is commercial satellites. So there's already a really robust and mature commercial space industry. Um, people watching satellite TV, weather, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, government space is a big deal for uh, military satellites, communication satellites, weather satellites, that kind of stuff. Um, so there's already a, you know, companies already make money in space, uh, by a lot. I think that the next, when people talk about commercial space, what they really mean is like space tourism and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it'll happen eventually. Richard Branson's idea, I think is a good one, but it's, uh, he wants to basically take a, an airplane with a rocket and launch it up to, to get a few minutes of weightlessness, not to get all the way into orbit, but just to get kind of a, a, several minutes of weightlessness. Um, that's going to be a great experience. The price tag will be affordable for many people. Not for me, it won't, but you know, it's still a couple hundred thousand dollars, but it's not $10 million or $50 million, you know, for, um, so there, there's a significant number of people who will be able to do that. I think blue origin is another company that's really, really legitimate. They've, they're going to have a great product. They're going to, uh, fly a capsule that'll do the same thing. It'll be a few minutes of, uh, of weightlessness. I think that's going to be an amazing experience. My, one of, one of my, um, shuttle crewmates is actually, um, working for them. So he, I was just emailing him yesterday about their progress on that. Um, so anyway, so yes, I think the commercial space industry is going to happen. I think it's really, really hard to go five times the speed of sound to get one of these suborbital flights. Um, if it was easy, people would be doing it already. Um, you know, military aviation around the world is mostly below the speed of sound. So if, if going five times the speed of sound was, was easy, you know, all the fighter jets around the world would be doing that. So in some ways it's been oversold and, and hyped up. And it, it really is something that's, that's tough to do. But I think it will happen. And I think the prices that they're going to charge, you know, most people won't be able to afford them. But there's still a lot of people that will have 50000 or maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars for a spaceflight experience. So I think that will happen in the long run. One of the things that I love to discuss with people on the show um, is the idea of success and how, you know, they view success and how their perspective may have changed. I'm, I'm curious to know how you feel uh, how you have viewed success throughout your career and how you might feel your life and career has been a success when you're looking back? Yeah, that's a good question. That's um, a thoughtful reflection that you don't normally think about too much. I think one thing that everybody needs to understand is that everybody is going to have success and failure. I mean, nobody is, you know, achieves and successful and never without flaw everything they do in their career. Um, sometimes, you know, people that seem like that and it's just really annoying, you know, this is the top grad from here and the top guy there. And, um, th those, those kind of guys kind of annoy you. In fact, when I was looking at the astronaut, uh, 
selection for new candidates, I kind of, the people who had perfect grades and got this job and that job, I tried to, I didn't avoid them, but it was a little bit of a warning flag. So I think you can learn as much from failures as you can from your successes. But I guess the definition of success for me is not simply doing what you want. I guess it's maybe making an impact on other people, Mm. making a positive impact on other people. I I guess maybe this is it. I've thought about this a lot when I'm done with something. I want to make it a better place or a better organization or a better group of people than when I got there. That's maybe ultimately that's my definition of success. If something is better when you're done than when you got there, then you were successful. Whatever it is, your your job, your mission, your family, your, you know, whatever it is, it's just something that, needs to be, um, I think, better when you're done than when you first got there. I guess that's, you know, that's just a part of evolution in a way is, you know, that we collectively as well improve. Improvement, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, View From Above is available for purchase online, Amazon.com. Thank you so much, Terry, for taking the time from London to, to chat with me. I uh, I end all of my conversations with the same question. Question is, what makes you silly? <laughs> Probably lots of things. Um, okay, let me think here. That's a good question. You're stumping. It's hard to ask me a question I've been asked after 17 years of uh, doing Q and A. Um, <laughs> probably playing uh, playing with my dogs. I've got some golden retrievers and. Um, those things cannot stop looking. They're, they're both puppies and they're like licking machines. I mean, you come up to them and they just attack you with, you know, trying to play with you. So those are, uh, those are pretty fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Terry. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, good to talk to you from the other side of the planet. <laughs>